Our Old Testament reading from 1 Kings chapter 17, we'll be reading verses 8 through 24. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. Bring me a little water. that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son and Elijah said to her do not fear go and do as I have asked little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son for thus says the Lord the God of Israel the jar of flour which shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress, became and his breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my son to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son, then he struck the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. In your mouth is truth. Then turning to our New Testament reading, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. Hear the word of God. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. There are personal forces at work in the world that are way beyond your ability to control. And I am not simply speaking of being a parent. 
When the Lord created the universe, he not only created all the physical realities that we're aware of, but he also created a vast multitude of spiritual beings that we call angels. And when Lucifer rebelled against the Lord and fell and became Satan, it seems that as many as a third of all the angels joined in his rebellion and fell with him, and they have now become demons. The modern Western world, I think largely out of a desire to pretend that we're in control of everything, has pushed the angelic and demonic realm out of our minds and out of our consciousness. Yet this is very different from pushing the reality of the spiritual realm out of our world. Um, consider C.S. Lewis's brilliant, delightful, and frankly quite insightful work, The Screwtape Letters. In The Screwtape Letters, senior demon Screwtape tells his nephew Wormwood that if he gets his human to think that he is not there, he can control everything the person does. So let me say it again. Pushing the spiritual realm out of our minds doesn't make it go away. And as Lewis suggests, it might actually leave us as something like sitting ducks for the powers of darkness. Thankfully, Jesus Christ has come to conquer Satan, sin, and death on behalf of his people. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you have absolutely no reason at all to be afraid of the demonic realm or even of Satan himself. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, in this passage, Matthew contrasts the horrible power and filth of demon possession with the overwhelming authority of the Son of God. The authority the Son of God has to cast out all such demons and to set free those in bondage to Satan. As the people of God, we have no reason to fear of a demonic realm. We have every reason to celebrate the person of Christ, the work that he has already accomplished, and the work that he is still doing in this world. However, if you're here this morning, having declared your independence from Jesus Christ, insisting that you can go it alone, then you have every reason to be afraid. See, Satan is not a joke. He is not some minor insignificant character in the history of the world. As Luther so pointedly puts it, on earth there is not his equal. It is only in Christ that you have no reason to fear the powers of darkness. We're going to look at this portion of God's word under four main headings this morning. First, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Second, the Son of God has already inaugurated his kingdom. Third, the Son of God has absolute authority. And fourth, the Son of God brings division. Let me give those to you again. First, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Second, the Son of God has already inaugurated his kingdom. Third, the Son of God has absolute authority and fourth, the Son of God brings division. 
Uh, we should start by reviewing where we've been over the past several weeks. Um, in many ways, this morning's passage is the climax to a long series of events that are all designed to reveal to us who Jesus Christ truly is. When Jesus had finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were utterly astonished that he spoke with such profundity, but also that he spoke with such authority and not as one of their scribes. Then as Jesus comes down the mountain, he repeatedly displays that his authority in word is matched by his authority in deed. Right? So you have Jesus coming down the mountain after this astonishing teaching, and he encounters a leper, and he graciously touches the leper. You know, something that Jews would have been horrified by, thinking that they would become unclean. But of course, instead of Jesus becoming unclean with a touch, the leper becomes perfectly clean himself. And then Jesus encounters a centurion, and with simply a word, he heals the centurion servant without knowing his name, without even being told where that servant is. He has that sort of power indeed. And then Jesus gets back to Peter and Andrew's house, surely waiting for you to get some food and some, some rest for himself. But as he walks in, he sees that Peter's mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever. And so he takes her hand, he lifts her up, and immediately she's healed. Well, not surprisingly, the crowds weren't only awed at Jesus' teaching, they were awed at the miracles he was doing. And more than that, they're all starting to think, I need to get my desperate loved ones who are sick, who have problems, of all manner of things, to Jesus as fast as I can in the hopes that Jesus will heal them as well. We are told in verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. They brought many, he healed all. Yet the vast crowd continued pressing in on Jesus. So Jesus gave orders to get the boat ready to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so as they head out into the boat, um, Mark tells us that Jesus found a, a cushion set up in the stern, and he begins to get some well-needed sleep. Uh, his day has been absolutely exhausting. And yet, while Jesus is getting some well-needed sleep, his disciples become completely terrified that they are about to die when a terrible storm rages into the sea. Uh, they wake Jesus up, you know, Lord, save us, which is, of course, not a bad thing to be saying when you're in trouble, although Jesus does rebuke them for their cowardly response not realizing they were already safe as long as he was in the boat with them. So Jesus rebukes the disciples, and then he rebukes the storm. Uh, you can go out and try that yourself the next time we have a big storm running through uh, Massachusetts or New Hampshire. You're going to find out that it doesn't work so well for you. But when Jesus speaks to the storm and rebukes it, the winds die like that, and the sea grows calm. Jesus is displaying his complete mastery over the physical aspects of the universe. Please pay attention to how the disciples respond, for this is the key question 
behind all of chapter 8 of Matthew's account of the gospel, the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? What sort of man is this? That's the key question of this chapter, but this climatic passage that we're looking at this morning is going to answer. Having demonstrated his absolute authority over nature as nature's Lord, Jesus comes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in order to do battle against the spiritual forces of darkness. Yet, as it turns out, there really isn't going to be a battle. See, Jesus does not hold most of the authority and power in heaven and on earth so that when he gets in a battle after a long raging outcome, Jesus finally comes out victorious. See, Jesus does not have most power. He has all power in heaven and on earth. And so instead of there being a battle, Jesus simply speaks a word and it's all over. Conquering a vast host of demons is as easy for Jesus Christ as healing the centurion servant from a distance. Your Lord has that sort of authority and power. So instead of portraying some dramatic battle, this passage further emphasizes the authority of Jesus who drives back Satan as he inaugurates God's kingdom in the midst of a fallen creation. Verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. So the Gadarenes refers to a region uh, southeast of the Lake of Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee, as we often call it. Uh, It's an area primarily of Gentiles. There would have been some Jews there. But you should think of this, just as Jesus goes to the Samaritans, he's going, as it were, outside of the chosen people to minister in this moment. Uh, This area uh, where Jesus actually lands is a small town uh, that is almost certainly what we now call Elkursi. And thanks to Google, you can actually look up Elkursi on the Sea of Galilee and see it's a beautiful area. But, But the beauty of this area has been marred by the powers of darkness, as two, de- two men are possessed by a multitude of demons. These two men come out to meet Jesus, and they are described as being so fierce that they made it impossible for anyone to pass by on the road. Uh, they're living among the tombs. The reason why we have tombs, to honor the dead, is also so people can go visit the dead, and and honor them there. But that would have been almost impossible for the people of the town while these two demon-possessed men were living there and attacking anyone who would come by. As Grant Osborne points out, the fact that outcasts, right, demon-possessed people are outcasts, would be living in tombs shouldn't really surprise us. Uh, The tombs of the more affluent people of the town would have been large. They would have been built into caves or dug into the side of, uh, of a hill. And they would have multiple spaces inside with the open being front, uh, the front being open. And of course what that means is, is that 
the front of these tombs would have provided shelters from the storms and so on. You might think of it as being better than homeless people today residing under bridges. It would have been more enclosed than that. And so it's not surprising that these demon-possessed men would be living in the tombs to find an escape from the elements. Nevertheless, tombs, think dead people, tombs like pigs were considered unclean in Jewish thought. So Matthew's first readers would have right away said, that fits demon-possessed people living in an unclean space among the dead. And the fact that these men were living in tombs makes me think of this more as a bit of a scene out of a horror movie. Even Gentiles would have been appalled by these men living among the remains of the dead. These men represent evil, chaos, and death. And they were also terrorizing the people of the community so that nobody was able to pass by on the road. Verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? After Jesus had quieted the storm, the disciples had asked this very important question. What manner of man is this? And we get the answer from a very surprising source. And not from the men, it's actually the demons who are speaking. While we see two men coming forward, it's the demons who do all the speaking, and it's Jesus who speaks to the demons. And the demons recognize Jesus for who he is. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Nevertheless, that designation has a range of meanings in the New Testament. Uh, and so it's a little hard to pin down exactly what the demons are claiming here. Many scholars believe that this is a use of the Son of God to refer to the Messiah, the one who represents God in this world. Uh, I'll remind you how that works. If you were to talk to a Jewish person in, say, 200 B.C., and you said, who is the Son of God? Almost certainly he or she would have said this. We are. Please notice the plural. We are. Right? The whole community of God's people is the Son of God. And that's precisely what the Lord himself says to Pharaoh when he's delivering his people out of Egypt. Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Let my people go. But then once we start having anointed kings in Israel, the king represents the whole community. And so the community is the Son of God, but the king in his person is also the son of God. Now, it's been several centuries since Israel's had a Davidic king truly reigning on the throne. But they're all looking forward to the day when God is going to raise up a great Davidic king, the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, he will be the son of God to the highest degree. And therefore, the term son of God came to simply mean Messiah, that, used that way sometimes in the Psalms, and it's certainly used that way sometimes in the Gospels. I, I think there's a bit of plausibility to this idea uh, that, that, in fact, what um, the demons are saying is he's the Messiah, particularly if we stretch it a bit and we combine it with Daniel's Old Testament background of the Son of Man, not the Son of God, but the Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah, who will 
arise into heaven in great glory and be seated at the throne of the universe. After all, as Paul will later say, right now there's a man on the throne of the universe, right? The King of kings and the Lord of lords is the man, Christ Jesus. And yet for all of that, I can't get past the idea that these demons are recognizing him as God. Right? The problem for me of thinking about Messiah is if they're thinking he's the Messiah, I think the demons are going to fight. The demons just surrender. I think it's because they're in the presence of Almighty God, and the thing that's surprising them is God has come in the flesh, in the middle of history, to confront them. You can figure that out the best you can for yourself, but as for me... I can't help but think that these demons are recognizing Jesus not only as the Messiah, but as God himself who has come in the flesh. As James would later say of the demons, they believe that God is one, and they shudder. These demons are being confronted by God in the flesh. They recognize him, and they shudder. And what really seems to be bothering these demons is that the Son of God is coming for them before when they imagined was the appointed time. They recognize Jesus as God. They know in the end God is going to win. Uh, you shouldn't imagine the demons are stupid. right? They know that God is going to win, but they imagine that they still had much more time to rebel against God by wreaking havoc in this world, most of all by harassing and even at times possessing God's own image bearers, human beings. So in fear they cry out, have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? What time? They almost certainly have the final judgment in view, and they seem to realize that the time of the final judgment has not yet come. What they do not grasp is that Almighty God has already drawn near in Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ is bringing in the kingdom in steps rather than in one cataclysmic judgment. And let me say this to you. Uh, I actually didn't learn this until I was in my mid to late 20s, but this is an important truth. What the demons don't understand about God bringing in the kingdom in stages is very important for us to grasp. And that the kingdom of God is not all future. When Jesus crashes into history as the king, he brings the kingdom with, us, with him. He inaugurates the kingdom. That is, he gets it started. Um, we already live on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus has done this great work in which all of history has already pivoted. And you live now in a privileged position that is far greater than the saints had in the Old Testament. Christ has already come. He is right now building his church. He has poured out the Holy Spirit. And actually, very importantly, in the context of this passage, the Lord is no longer limiting his work primarily to a small strip of land in the Middle East. Rather, he is sending his gospel forth in power to the ends of the earth among the Gentiles. Right? Uh, it surprises me sometimes. I don't, I don't care what your millennial view is. It surprises me sometimes that people miss how great the work is that Christ has already done over the last 2,000 years. You know, 1,000 years ago, there were no Christians in the United States. Now there's 
millions, maybe tens of millions. Tens of millions of people say they're Christians. We don't know. And it's the most claimed religion on the face of the earth. Right? The gospel is going forth in this age in power. And Christ is rolling back the kingdom of darkness. Beloved, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Jesus Christ has already inaugurated his kingdom. Look at verses 30 and 31 with me. Now a herd of pigs was feeding it some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. I want you to pay special attention to the fact that there's no battle going on. The demons don't fight Jesus. They, they, as they were, getting on their knees, they're begging Jesus for permission to do something. Now, it's true that human beings, that's us, and even the holy angels are sometimes going to be engaged in spiritual warfare. But Jesus Christ does not engage in spiritual warfare. He simply says the word. And the demons here who recognize him as God recognize he has all authority. There is no fight at all. The demons do not fight with Jesus. They beg Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs when he casts them out of these two men. The demons are completely subject to our Lord's authority. Now, it's not entirely clear, at least to me, if it is to you, come see me after the sermon, but it's not entirely clear to me why these demons want to be cast into pigs. Why that's a better thing than not being um, disembodied, as it were, since they are, after all, spiritual beings. But the fact that Jesus grants this request um, actually helps us see two things. First, it graphically demonstrates what a vast multitude of demons Jesus was encountering. They don't enter a pig, they enter a herd of pigs. Mark tells us there were about 2,000 of them. And these 2,000 pigs all stampede down into the water. That shows what a vast multitude of, of demons Jesus is overcoming. And second, it sets up a dramatic decision for the people of the town. I wonder if you heard this passage read, you've thought very much about how that ending is sort of strange as it were, but they're begging Jesus to go away. The second thing about these demons entering the pigs is it sets up a dramatic decision for the people of the town. Will they celebrate and welcome this Jesus, this holy man of God, who has the power to cast out demons, but who also has the authority to destroy all of their wealth in just a moment? Well, we'll talk about that a bit later. Verse 32. And Jesus said to them, Go! So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Jesus does grant these demons their, at least to me, rather strange request. But as soon as he does so, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, for a first century Jewish reader, the irony would have been obvious. Um, when, when Jews think about hell and demons being cast into hell, 
they would talk about it in terms of the demons being cast into the abyss. And so Jesus allows these demons to go into the pigs, and then they rush down the steep embankment and drown in the water, and they would have seen this as Jews as they go into the abyss. That is, Jesus isn't negotiating a deal with these demons. He's actually saying, you can go into the pigs, I'm going to judge you anyway. Uh, This is a good place to remind ourselves of a detail from the longer account of this incident found in the Gospel according to Mark. By the way, both Mark and Luke, along with Matthew, um, talk about this incident because it's a very important story in our Lord's life. In Mark's account, the demons identify themselves. Uh, They identify themselves as legion. Now, you might think that, of course, refers to the fact that there are many. They say, our name is Legion, for we are many. But here's an interesting thing. Matthew does not translate the Latin word Legion into Greek. He keeps the Latin word there. I think the reason for that is pretty obvious. Legion doesn't simply mean many. It has a connotation for every first century reader. If you live in the Roman Empire and you hear the word Legion, you don't think many. You think Roman legions, right? The, the, the Roman military might, legion actually would normally have around 6,000 Roman soldiers. It was the Roman military might by which they conquered people. It was the Roman military might by which they kept places like Judea in subjection. In fact, the mere fear of dealing with the Romans often kept, the Roman legions often kept the peace. Now, large swaths of the Jewish people We're looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come and he would lead them in a great war. Sure, the war would be costly, but with the Messiah leading them, they'd be victorious. They'd finally throw the Roman legions out. Yet it turns out that Jesus came to conquer a far greater enemy. Jesus came in part to conquer the legions behind the legions. Now, that does, of course, mean that eventually Jesus will overthrow the Roman Empire and Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union and so on. What this passage is telling us is he's already conquered the demonic forces that lie behind these oppressive regimes. Jesus came to do far more than to deliver us from uh, whoever you are afraid is going to become the next president of the United States. He came to conquer Satan, sin, and death on behalf of the people. Casting the legion of demons into the pigs and then having them plunge into the abyss makes clear that Jesus has absolute authority over all enemies, his and yours. And please notice, there's no great battle. In the entire passage, Jesus only says one word. The the demons plead with him, and the only word Jesus says is, go. No great battle. With a single word, his will is done. The matter is settled, so thousands of demons get cast out and then rush into the abyss. Beloved, this is the Jesus who loves you and who has given himself for you. This is the Jesus who right now is seated at his Father's right hand, who is governing the entire universe for the sake of his church. 
This is the Jesus who ever lives to make intercession for you and for all the people of God. Now perhaps at this point, the first readers of Matthew's account of the gospel, um, they might have expected to hear how even these Gentiles in large numbers came to faith in Jesus Christ. If you remember John's account of Jesus going to the Samaritans, that's precisely what we see. Jesus has this beautiful and engaging encounter with this outcast woman at the well. And she opens, he opens up to her that he's the Messiah, and she goes into the town. And on her testimony, large groups of Samaritans come out to see Jesus. And as they're listening to him, you know what they say? They beg Jesus to stay with them. Please keep that word in mind, beg. They beg Jesus to stay with them. And he stays for two days. And after he teaches them some more, they say to the woman, we, we appreciate you bringing the message. But now we know for ourselves that truly this man is the savior of the world. Wouldn't that have been a great ending to this story here in the Gadarenes among the Gentiles? But that's not what happened. Look at verses 33 and 34 with me. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Well, that sounds good. All the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Like the demons... The people of the city recognize our Lord's absolute authority. They don't try to overwhelm him. They don't try to drive him out of their city. Like the demons, they desperately beg Jesus to grant their request. The demons beg Jesus to go into the pigs. The people beg Jesus to leave them alone. They had come to know something of our Lord's holy authority and they decided that they would rather do without him. See, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has already inaugurated his kingdom. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has absolute authority over both his and our enemies. Nevertheless, this story is not all sunshine and roses. For the Son of God brings division. He did in the first century, and he does in our century as well. Why would people who encounter our Lord's holy authority plead with him to leave? Stop and think about that for a moment, because this is not just about them, it's about us. Why would people who encounter the Lord's holy authority plead for him to leave and leave them alone? And the answer is pretty Obvious, it's right there on the pages of Scripture. 2,000 pigs had just been rushing into the sea and died. Uh, that might have been the herd for most of the town. They had their wealth tied up in those pigs. And to put the matter bluntly, they preferred having two men that were demon-possessed and their pigs, or having those men being liberated and losing a big chunk of their wealth. They preferred pigs 
to Jesus. In fact, as Jeffrey Gibbs points out, the townspeople prefer to imitate the demons over getting to live with and for the Son of God. The demons and the townspeople both recognize that Jesus possesses extraordinary authority, but they both react in fear rather than faith. Both have nothing in common with Jesus, and they want nothing to do with him. Now that's important to hear, but if I put it like that, Professor Gibbs puts it like that, it almost makes it sound too simple. Surely we wouldn't do the same thing, right? They're so obviously doing the wrong thing on the pages of Scripture. But we need to apply this lesson back into our own lives. How will we respond if being close to Jesus means that we cannot get into a good college? That's a good question for some of you young people. Do you distance yourself a bit from Jesus so people don't think you know, you're really too one of those crazy Christians over there but it's really sold out in order to get ahead in this life? Uh, what does it mean if getting closer to Jesus means it's going to hurt your career? Or actually, as it has for many Christians throughout history, means that you might get ostracized in your society, persecuted, suffer, even exiled. What do you do with that? Right? That's the question this passage is pushing on us. The tragedy of this community pleading with Jesus to leave them alone after he has demonstrated to them who he is. Right? That he has the authority of the Son of God. After he has demonstrated who he is, the tragedy of this community pleading with Jesus to leave them alone has been written down for our instruction. And the intent of this passage is to stiffen our spines and to cause us to stand with Martin Luther and confidently, and I say joyfully sing, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen.